You know, in the ancient church, the congregation stood and the preacher sat down. We should try that one Sunday. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, where we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16 this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Just to remind you, we're taking a couple of weeks at the start of the year to um, refresh ourselves on the things that we believe make for healthy church ministry, uh, and as well as a healthy way to do that ministry. So... Last week, we looked at how every member is essential for building up the body of Christ, and this morning, we're going to consider what that building up might look like. So, I hope you've turned to Ephesians chapter 4, and I invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. I'm going to pick it up in verse 11 and read through verse 16. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And He, that is the ascended Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, please help us now to hear your word with ears of faith. Please illuminate our hearts and minds by God the Holy Spirit so that we would see the things that are here that you have revealed in truth concerning yourself and concerning us in relationship to you as your church. Lord, please keep me from error. Please grant us discernment, God. And please help us to grow, Father, in the truth we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean for a church to grow? It's the question I want to ask with you this morning. What does it mean for a church to grow? Considering the mission mandate of the Lord Jesus, there's hardly a more pressing question for a church to consider. Think of the Great Commission, friends. To be a disciple of Christ is, in some sense, to make more disciples. And therefore, the question of growth is inescapable. It's inescapable. As Christians, we want the church to grow because Jesus commands us to go and make disciples. And yet, by and large, Christians, at least in America, seem thoroughly confused on this vital question. Take, for example, what is possibly the most puzzling exercise in American church life, the annual publication of the fastest-growing churches list. The list does just what it claims to do. It tracks the 100 churches who have grown at the highest rate over the last year. It's a fascinating list for a number of reasons. But just think about that phrase for a second, fast 
growth. Is fast even the right measure? Does fast translate to stability, to endurance, to clarity? It's such an odd criteria to prioritize fast growth. You know, weeds grow faster than redwoods, but wouldn't you want a redwood strong church, even if it takes a little longer to get it? Such an odd criteria. And the list proves my point. When it comes to the vital question of growth, which we have to answer, when it comes to that vital question, Christians, at least in our country, seem thoroughly confused. But our passage this morning, friends, is like a light that cuts through the fog of our confusion. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, the the Apostle Paul clearly expects the church to grow. He even uses the word grow in verse 16. You see it there? So that we would grow. But significantly, Paul's discussion of growth does not subject us to the tyranny of numerical pursuits, and neither does it discourage small congregations like ours. Rather, Paul's vision of growth is one that applies to all churches, both big and small, both the numerically thriving and the statistically steady. Paul's vision of growth centers on an unexpected reality ever. However, it's the reality of truth. Specifically, the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. This is the key to the text, friends. Notice how the language of truth is woven through Paul's teaching. Look look with me, verse 13. The church is striving after the knowledge that is the truth concerning the Son of God. Then verse 14, the church is vigilant against what? False doctrine. That is, anything that deviates from the truth. And then verse 15, the church grows by speaking what? The truth in love. You see the emphasis? 13, 14, 15. Grow in the truth, Paul says. Paul clearly wants the church to grow. It's vital. But the apostle defines that growth not necessarily in terms of numbers, but rather in a deepening embrace of the truth. And friends, that deepening embrace of the truth is church growth in the most important sense. Deepening embrace of the truth is church growth in the most important sense. For some of us, that statement is simply a reminder of what we already have clearly in view. But for others of us, that statement might be a needed course correction. Listen, I know how easy it is to get focused on the visible, trackable stats of a church. The most awkward conversations of my life are ones that I have with other pastors, and that's not an exaggeration. They're just awkward, because the most frequent question I get is, how big is your church? And by that, they mean how many people you got coming on Sunday. So I know firsthand how easy it is to get this out of balance, And when that happens, it's natural to be discouraged, and perhaps it's also natural to even start thinking in worldly terms about success and progress and return on investment. I actually had a pastor use that phrase with me before about the return on investment of ministry in the church, and I couldn't remember if I was in the presence of a minister of God's Word or a Wall Street executive. Return on investment? What does that even mean? It's easy to get sidetracked. And friends, that kind of thinking loses sight of what Paul defines for us here in Ephesians chapter 4. That kind of thinking misses the centrality of truth when it comes to the church's growth. So perhaps this sermon today is a reminder for you. Perhaps it's a course correction for some of us. Perhaps it's a little bit of both for all of us, me included. 
regardless of how we're thinking, I do pray that we would be encouraged today as a church body as we think about what it means for a church to grow. In terms of an outline then, I want to draw your attention to three marks of a growing church in this text. Importantly, each mark applies to any type of church, large or small. And I do want to emphasize that point, friends. Please do not hear me today as saying that numbers are bad. They're not. They're not. I pray that we see an increase in baptisms and therefore an increase in membership this year. I pray that our budget increases so we can do more ministry. Those things aren't bad. They're not evil. They're not wicked. My point isn't to argue against numerical increase. Rather, my point is that numerical increase is not the only measure of growth or even the most important measure of growth. What Paul lays out in these verses is a vision of growth that transcends numbers. That's what I want to convince you of today from God's Word. So let's notice together three marks of an Ephesians 4 growing church. Number one comes in verse 13. A growing church is increasingly shaped by the truth. A growing church is increasingly shaped by the truth. You'll remember from last week that Paul has so far been making the case that every Christian is essential to the work of ministry. Look back just briefly with me at how the passage has progressed. Verse 7, Christ gave gifts of grace to His church, which means every believer is equipped by the Lord. Verse 11, Christ's grace is uniquely manifested in the work of pastors who are called to minister the Word within the body. And then verse 12, the grand purpose in all of this is that the saints would be equipped to do the work of ministry. So that's been Paul's emphasis up to this point. When it comes to building up the body of Christ, every believer, every Christian, every member has an essential role to play. As we come to verse 13, Paul now begins to flesh out in more detail what it means to build up the church. Look at verse 13. Notice how he uses three phrases to describe one essential reality. And that reality, friends, is spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. In fact, you can see this essential point in the middle of the verse. What are we aiming at when we minister to one another? We're aiming at mature manhood, Paul says. You see it there in verse 13? What's it mean to build up the church? It means that we all grow into mature manhood, which Paul then says is measured by the fullness of Christ. Friends, that's the purpose of building one another up. That's the mark of growth Paul gives here in verse 13. It's spiritual maturity in the Lord Jesus. Instead of remaining in spiritual infancy, Paul urges us to grow up in Christ. You see, that's how a church grows as every member is shaped and strengthened and matured by the truth revealed in Jesus. Now, that still leaves an important question that we have to answer. We want to be shaped by the truth. We want this mature manhood, like Paul says. But what does that look like in practice? <laughs> How do we know spiritual maturity when we see it? Well, that's where Paul's first phrase in verse 13 helps us. Mature manhood, Paul says, comes about as the truth shapes in us an increasing gospel unity. That's mature manhood. And increasing gospel unity. Notice the first phrase in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge 
of the Son of God. Now, the faith in view here is not our expression or experience of faith. Rather, the faith in view here is the very content of the Gospel. Do you notice how Paul adds the phrase, the knowledge of the Son of God, after he says the unity of the faith? You see, he's immediately defining for you what the faith is. It's knowledge of the Son of God. This is key, friends. The faith, in verse 13, is the truth that exists outside of us. It's the truth that is revealed in the Son of God. It's the truth in which we trust. So the idea in verse 13 is similar to what Jude says in his letter. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not your faith that you give to Jesus. It's the faith that God reveals. The truth that God reveals in Christ. And as a church, we grow as we go deeper in that truth. That's how we grow. That's spiritual maturity. Remember the beginning of the chapter where Paul urged us to see our unity as a church. Remember those first six verses in the chapter. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. That's the unity of the faith that Paul's talking about in verse 13. There's one Gospel. And spiritual maturity means that we are shaped, all of us together, to increasingly see our identity in that one truth. In that one Gospel. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. And therefore, to mature as a church, we must put aside every other competing claim on our unity. We have to put aside every other competing claim on what defines our identity. So as a church, we have to put aside ethnicity and social status. We've got to put aside personality preferences and political commitments. You've got to put aside cultural background and family history. Each of those realities is not bad in and of itself, but it's not central. It's not the one faith, you see? And so each of those has the potential to compete with the faith as the defining mark of the church. And brothers and sisters, we must be vigilant to ensure that never happens. The deeper we grow in the unity of this one faith, the more we mature as a church. So let me just state it plainly for us. What unites us as a church is only the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes us brothers and sisters is the truth that we confess in Jesus and only that truth. The truth that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, uncreated and equal to the Father in nature and glory. That this eternal Son laid aside that glory in order to take on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. That He fulfilled the law of God through a life of perfect obedience. That He was condemned to die a sinner's death even though He was innocent and righteous before God. That He did die and He was buried for three days. And that after those three days, He rose again in victory for His people. That He ascended again to the Father's right hand where He's received all authority on heaven and earth to rule and from whence He is coming very soon to judge the living and the dead. And that salvation 
Freedom from sin. Rescue from hell. Redemption from everything that has enslaved you. Salvation is found only in Him by God's sovereign grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Brother and sister, if we believe that, then we're one body. And you lay aside everything else. You can be rich or poor, white or black, Democrat or Republican. That one faith binds us together. And listen to me. The church in our country has got to get this straight. Or we're going to lose our witness. The deeper we go in that one faith, the more we mature as, our, as a church. That's our unity, friends. That's our identity as a church. That faith revealed in Christ And Paul's point is that we mature by embracing more deeply that gospel unity. And listen, listen, friends, this actually makes a practical, a massive practical difference in the life of the church. This is not theoretical. The fruit of this kind of gospel unity is more mature Christian character in your life and mine. The deeper we go in the unity in the gospel, the more we see mature Christian character in your life and mine. Let me give you an example. The Bible calls us to forbear with one another. The old word for that command is to be long-suffering. You're supposed to forbear with each other. Rather than impatiently writing people off, I bear with them. I endure what grates on my nerves. I refuse to backbite or gossip or be dismissive about towards other people. That's the command to forbear, right? To be long-suffering. It's a godly putting up with someone, right? That's hard to do, isn't it? Yes, it's difficult. Some personalities just rub us the wrong way. (laughs) Sometimes we're just fed up with a situation. Or sometimes a person is so different than me, I cannot fathom why they would do what they would do. So, in those situations, how do I forbear? How am I long-suffering with someone like that? Well, I remember that my brother and I share the same Lord, that this same Lord died for both of our sins, that this same Lord is infinitely long-suffering with me to a measure that I cannot possibly imagine. And whatever differentiates us as two individuals That truth that there's one Lord who saved both of us, that truth overcomes that difference and then unites us. We are both saved by the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, if the Lord of glory has forborne with me and with my brother, then surely I can forbear with him as well. Surely I can be long-suffering as well. In fact, since we are part of the same body, part of the way that Christ demonstrates His long-suffering mercy is through my forbearing with my brother. You see, that's striving after the unity of the faith. The one faith in one Lord and one baptism makes a massive difference on how we live. It's when the reality of this one Gospel strengthens us to display the character of Christ with one another. And friends, when that happens in a church over and over and over, the church grows. The church is matured to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Friends, that vision for a church life is compelling to me. It's why we've spent the last eight and a half years planting and watering the seed of the gospel at this church. That vision of church life is compelling to me. 
I hope it's compelling to you. But I also hope that you hear how essential it is for the gospel to be sweet and central to your life. If you're a Christian, the thing that people should know the most about you is that you love the gospel. That you love the gospel. I hope we all hear how vital it is that we be growing in our embrace of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need the gospel, brothers and sisters, not simply to save us from hell, but also to unite us and then mature us in the image of Christ. That's the first mark of a church. And that exhortation about the centrality of the gospel leads us to the second mark of a growing church, this time from verse 14. A growing church is actively anchored in the truth, increasingly shaped by the truth, and a growing church is actively anchored in the truth. As we're thinking about spiritual maturity, verse 14 spells out why this maturity is so important in the Christian life. And it has to do with discernment, friends. Notice how Paul picks up the image of spiritual infancy. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, Paul mixes his metaphors here a bit. He starts with the image of childhood, which contrasts with the mature manhood in verse 13. But then Paul switches to the image of a ship that's being tossed about in a storm and driven dangerously off course. Even if you haven't spent any time sailing or, or, or taken any voyages on a ship, you can still appreciate the danger of that situation. A ship driven by the wind is at the mercy of the elements. At any moment, the ship could run aground and sink. And so it is with Christians who are not maturing in the faith. They're like a ship without sails. They're like a ship without a rudder, just being tossed and driven. And they need an anchor. But here's Paul's point, friends. Here's the connection that gives us that anchor. Look again at verse 14 and ask yourself, what exactly is carrying immature Christians off course? What does Paul say? He says it's every wind of doctrine. That's striking, brothers and sisters. Paul doesn't say we're carried off by immorality. He doesn't say we're carried off by wickedness, to be sure, those things are absolutely dangerous to our faith. But that's not, what get Paul's, that's not what gets Paul's attention. Instead, Paul warns us against the winds of false doctrine. You see, this is another example of Paul's foundational teaching on the Christian life. What enters our minds shapes our hearts, and what shapes our hearts eventually flows out in how we live. So, is Paul concerned with immorality in the life of a Christian? Absolutely, yes. But where does that dangerous drift begin? In the life of the mind. As every wind of doctrine carries us off course and carries us into habits of living that shape in us an active opposition against the one true and living God. Brothers and sisters, what I'm urging us to see here is the powerful role that truth Doctrinal truth plays in the Christian life. A growing church is one where her members are actively growing deeper in the truth so that the truth anchors them in the storm of life. Listen, friends, the world is not neutral. The world is not neutral. There are, 
ideas at work in the world that seek to erode your faith. There are philosophies in the world that work like acids. They corrode your trust in God until the Christian life just crumbles into dust. It's been this way in every age of human existence, but perhaps the challenge is unique for us in the digital age. We have so much information available at our fingertips, more than we can handle. Previous generations were concerned about having the truth kept from them. Perhaps we should be concerned about having the truth obscured by a flood of triviality and falsehood. Why would they need to keep the truth from us when we can just scroll to the next thing and be distracted? We have so much information at our fingertips, and yet the church in our day seems to lack the discernment necessary to navigate the times. And then you combine that with the fact that we're increasingly trained to think in sound bites and to ignore context and to flit from one thing to another in these short bursts of disconnected stimulation. It's no wonder, as one writer has said, that we seem content to just amuse ourselves to death. So Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 4, century, millennia ago. But they could hardly be more relevant in 2020. We are like ships adrift in the storm. But a growing church pushes back against that drift. That's my point here, friends. And I believe it's a point that's urgent. A growing church pushes back against that drift. A growing church looks to the truth as revealed in Christ. And that church finds an anchor that keeps us steady. We need discernment, friends. We need to recognize that the world is also in the business of making disciples. In fact, that's a good way to think about your life. When I say the world is not neutral, what I mean is that you and I are always being discipled by something. Always. We're either being discipled by the truth of God's Word or we're being discipled by the so-called truths of the culture and the world. You're always being discipled. There's no moment when your mind and your heart and your affections and your habits are free from some conforming pressure. And therefore, a growing church takes seriously this call to be anchored in the truth as revealed in Christ. Now, even as I say that, I know that there is someone who is thinking that I'm overstating the case. That, I, that, I'm, just, that I'm, I'm, I'm too worked up and that I'm overstating the case. But I don't think so, friends. And here's why. Don't take my word for it. Look at the Scriptures. Notice the end of verse 14. This is the reason why the world is not neutral. Notice the source behind these winds of doctrine. Paul says, "...by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." Did you catch that word crafty? Or this idea of, of cunning? Paul uses very similar language in 2 Corinthians 11 to describe the evil one, Satan. From the very beginning, friends, this has been the serpent's scheme. He whispers false doctrine. Did God really say? In order to lead God's people astray. And that's why I say the world is not neutral. We're always being discipled by something. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not pining for the good old days when life was just more simple. Life on some level has always been like this. So please don't hear me as the old man ranting for all the kids to get off his front yard. That's not what I'm trying to say. 
But I do hope to wake you up today. I do hope to wake all of us up. Christians in 2020 America are asleep in the storm. And we need to wake up. And we need to realize that we must grow in discerning and holding on to the truth. We need to answer the unique challenges of our day. And one of those unique challenges is that the serpent's whispers come through so many more channels than before. You see, the world's not neutral. And therefore, if we want to go, grow as a church, we need discernment to remain anchored in the truth. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we grow in discernment? We can't retreat to the wilderness. We've got to be in the world to fulfill our mission. But we must not be of the world. So the answer isn't just to run for the hills. That, that's not faithfulness. We can't do that. But we do need discernment. So how do we cultivate it? Where do we get it? That's a huge topic. And it's one that we could spend a long time on this morning if we wanted to. For example, I could talk about the necessity of remaining closely connected to the community of saints in the church where other believers provide the discernment in areas that we lack. That would be one thing. Or I could talk about the need to strengthen the life of the mind through Scripture reading and through other pursuits of truth that deepen our grasp of theology and history and culture and ideas and whatever else. There's all sorts of things that we could talk about if we want to talk about cultivating discernment. But I want to direct your attention back to verse 13. Back to verse 13, where Paul talks about the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a key, perhaps the key, to developing discernment. Spiritual maturity is defined in relationship to Jesus. The character of a maturing Christian looks more like Jesus day by day over the long haul. So, if Christ-likeness is the measure of spiritual maturity, then learning discernment is the practice of holding things up to the measure that is Christ. You see? Spiritual maturity is Christ-likeness. So if I want to be discerning, I take what I hear in the world and I hold it up against the measure of Christ and I say, how does it stack up? Is it true or not? Discernment is, in one sense, simply this practice of measuring what we encounter against the standard of the Lord Jesus. So, we learn to ask ourselves questions as we interact with the world around us. For example, does this practice lead me toward Christ-likeness or away from it? Does this habit make me hungrier for Christ's truth or does it make me hungrier for the world? Would this opportunity that I have strengthen my relationship to the church, which is Christ's body, or would it weaken it? Does this idea that I'm considering in my mind, does it make the truths of the Gospel clear and more compelling, or does it obscure the truths of the Gospel and make them less appealing? You see, Christ is the, Christ is the measure there. And His character, which defines maturity, becomes the standard that we use to help live with discernment. We hold things up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, we could make a list of all the things that Christians should avoid. We could, this is what Rome does. Rome publishes a banned books list. And you're not allowed to read a book on the banned books list or you get excommunicated from the church. 
That's like reason number 863 that Rome is weird. A banned books list. We could make a list of all the things that we ought not to do. But you know what? That's actually too narrow, friends. That's much too narrow. We need a measure that applies across a myriad of situations in a multitude of spheres. And Paul is telling us that the measure is Christ. The measure is Christ. You hold things up to the standard that is the Lord Jesus. As Paul says in one of his other letters in Colossians, Christ holds all things together. So to be anchored in the truth, we need to learn this practice of measuring and assigned somewhere. Every Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. And that's Paul's point in verse 15. When Paul says, speak the truth, he's not merely telling us to be honest with one another. That's a given. No, Paul intends for us to speak the truth of Christ to one another, to minister the gospel to one another. So notice again how the unity of the body informs our ministry to one another. Because we belong to the one Lord, Jesus Christ, and are united in the one faith, marked by the one baptism, belonging to the one God and Father, because we're one body, brothers and sisters, our interest is for one another. That's what Paul means by love in verse 15. It's not just the internal warmth of an affection. It's the practical outworking of the fact that we're one body. That's the love. My interest is for you and your interest is for me. You or I are connected in Christ and therefore I love you by encouraging, exhorting, and yes, even admonishing you with the truth. And when that kind of ministry is happening throughout the body, the church grows. So Paul says, the church matures and takes on more and more of the character of Christ. But essential to this growth, friends, is the church's ministry of the truth. Speak the truth in love, Paul tells us. That's, that's how we grow. We speak the truth. We take the initiative and we speak to one another the truth of the gospel. It could be as simple as a text message or an email that includes a verse from your daily Bible reading. It could be a casual conversation at the park where you share how the Scriptures have convicted you and where you're seeking to grow. It could be going to a brother or sister and in love, calling them to live more in step with the Bible. It could be reminding a fellow believer about what is true about them in the Gospel of Christ. That their sins are forgiven. That they've been adopted into God's family. That there's there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, you know that most Christians are massively under-encouraged, right? Massively under-encouraged. So be the means of grace that brings the encouragement of the Gospel to other believers in the body. The vast majority of the issues that we face in the Christian life can be solved with more encouragement especially from God's Word. So ask the Spirit to give you eyes to see the needs and then take the initiative to speak the truth in love. Thank you for praying for the body of Christ here at Midtown Baptist. Keep praying and speak to one another the truth. Encourage each other with the truth of God's Word. Friends, when the church lives this way, the result is astounding. Look at verse 16. It's a fitting summary because it captures so much of what we've talked about the last two weeks. Look at verse 16. And as I read this, just prayerfully imagine this kind of growth happening more and more in our church. I'll pick it up in verse 15. 
We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a picture Paul gives us of a growing church. United in Christ who is the head, every member gifted and essential for the work, all members working together, holding each other up, binding each other more deeply in Christ so that, so that in the end, the body builds itself up in love. Friends, that's church growth. That's the church growing together in love. You know, sociologists and pollsters tell us that we're living in a post-Christian America where the common language of Christian faith and virtue has pretty much died out. And that's probably true. That's probably true. And one of the effects of the post-Christian landscape that we live in is that churches will now struggle to grow as people increasingly embrace fragmented lives of personalized spirituality, there will be no compulsion for folks to connect with a church. Why would I need the church? And so, the experts tell us, the days of church growth in America, at least numerical growth, the days of that numerical growth are probably over, the experts say. Who knows if that analysis is accurate, friends? Who knows? But I am convinced that the vision of a growing church that we see here in Ephesians 4, where every member is engaged, where love is worked out among people from all sorts of backgrounds, where the rock-solid reality of truth anchors us against the storm. Friends, I'm convinced that that vision of growth can and will be a light in the darkness of this world. So consider the mission mandate given to us by the Lord Jesus. To be a disciple is, in some sense, to make more disciples. We want the church to grow. But that growth doesn't have to wait for numerical increase, friends. That growth begins right now in the life of the body together. Right now, today. And as we live this way, the Lord Jesus will draw His people to Himself, the mission will advance, and God willing, the lost will join us by grace, through faith, to be united in the one Lord one faith, and one baptism of the gospel. That's church growth. So, let's grow deeper together, brothers and sisters, and let's do so by speaking the truth in love in here and out there. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to think biblically about these crucial questions related to the church and her life and ministry. Father, help us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this, Father, not just in our own individual hearts, but we pray it also, Father, as a church, that we would not, Father, as a church, be conformed to the world, but that our thinking would be in step with the Scriptures, that we would be increasingly shaped by the truth, so that our unity in the Gospel would be the one and only thing that defines us as a body. We pray that we would be anchored in that truth, God. That we would hear the Word. That we would cultivate discernment. That we would measure things against the Lord Jesus Himself. And we pray, Father, that You would make us a church that is purposefully, faithfully ministering that truth to one another so that the body builds itself up in love. God, would You do this today? 
Would you begin this good work now? Would you carry it on in the ways that you've started it? Would you help us, Father? Would you help us as a church to be a compelling witness of lives loving one another for the glory of Christ so that the lost might see and come and hear and be saved by your grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.